Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this. It is both chapter eight of this Facebook Live reading of the book, Delight, Discipleship as the Adventure of Loving and Being Loved. And it's also episode nine of season four of the Next Step podcast. I take the recording and I put it out there to our podcast friends as well. Uh, I told you about this a few episodes back, but in case you missed it, just recently, it's now possible for you to say, if you've got an Amazon Alexa, you can say, Alexa, play the podcast, find my next step. And this book reading will come across your uh, Alexa app. So that's awesome. Uh, Great Aunt Elva had a hip surgery today. She fell over the weekend and it required surgery. So we're thinking of her and keeping her in our prayers this afternoon and evening. And Naomi's got oral surgery to take out her wisdom teeth tomorrow morning. So surgeries in the family, turns out that's that's what we're facing this week in the Rosso household. Uh, we are moving from 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Maybe you caught my couple minute video earlier today. I'll be reading Delight at 7 in order to clear the way for Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson has written some of my favorite music ever and of some books that I really like. Kind of in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, he wrote The Wing Feather Saga. He read the first two chapters uh, during the quarantine this last spring Easter season. And uh, he's picking up now in the fall with book three, The Monster in the Hollows. That'll be on Facebook Live as well at the Andrew Peterson Music Facebook page. I put a link in the description of this Facebook Live video as well. Check that out. Andrew Peterson's an awesome guy. Read his stuff. Uh, He's written a book called Adorning the Dark about the creative process as a Christian. Really like his theology, really like his heart. So please check out Andrew Peterson and tell him I sent you. He's a cool guy. Um, So tonight we're in chapter 8. It's one of my favorite chapters. I have perhaps only 12 favorite chapters in the whole book. Uh, But this one is chapter 8 and it's called, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's a quote directly from the Song of Solomon, and that's one of the key images of mutual delight that Scripture gives us for our relationship with God. So without further ado, let's get into chapter 8 of the Delight book. Section 1 of chapter 8 is called My Beautiful Wife, and this is one one of the reasons it's one of my favorites. I don't think I'll ever forget the look on Miriam's face as she appeared from behind the massive pipe organ at the Chapel of the Holy Trinity on the campus of Concordia University, Ann Arbor. She was arm in arm with her father, a rather composed and dignified man in a conductor's tux, who was trying hard to keep it together as he escorted his baby girl down the aisle. I even have a photograph to help me remember the event. Miriam, in her beautiful wedding dress, with her hair piled high, Miriam looked like a kid in a candy shop. Miriam's eyes were open, almost impossibly wide, as she scanned the crowd. Her calla lily bouquet in one hand and her father's arm in the other, she rounded the corner to come down the aisle and saw her sister and my sister and select family and friends in rich, deep green dresses and black tuxedos, standing in attendance on the slate tile stairs at the front of the sanctuary. And there, surrounded by flowers and stained glass, she also saw her groom. Me. 
looking back up the aisle at her, waiting for her to walk down the altar to make and receive, to make and receive promises, vows of love and commitment. I don't think I'll ever forget the look on Miriam's face. Her countenance was a reflection of joy, wonder, and absolute delight. I don't know what my face looked like just then. The cameraman was rather busy with something else. But I do have a picture on my mantle of a moment from later in the worship service. Miriam and I are facing each other. We're holding hands, and I was just speaking tender words of promise to her as her groom, and she was just speaking tender words of promise to me as my bride. And I look... Well, first of all, I look skinny. I look awfully young. I happened to be teaching at a private high school at the time, and the rules governing faculty facial hair back then meant I was only allowed a mustache and not the goatee. My hair was kind was the floppy curl I wore back in college, and to my eyes now, I look like I was about 12. But besides all that, I also look absolutely in love. Just head over heels, a little puppy dog with big, bright eyes, and oh my yes, a black, swishy tail. I can't tell you that every moment since has been just like that. You and I both know that because we are in a fallen and sinful world, all of our relationships, our marriages included, all of our relationships are dysfunctional to one extent or another, some more, some less. And whether you have ever been married or never been married, or your marriage was a roller coaster or a train wreck or a celebration or some combination of all of those, I want you to know that you don't have to carry your own personal baggage with you into this chapter on delight. And I don't have to carry mine. You have permission not to have to think about your marriage or your baggage, as you go through this chapter. This image of a bride walking down the aisle to meet her groom still holds something important for your life of faith. That moment of, of joy and intimacy and promise and anticipation and, yes, delight wrapped up with the best experiences of being bride and groom, husband and wife, all the best of who we are and what we experience is a window into God's heart for us. Uh, depending on the week you're having, it might be hard to relate to that image. You can come back to this chapter later if the topic is a little too sensitive right now. But I want you to know that the brokenness of your experience does not, cannot diminish what this image of mutual delight means for you in your relationship with a God who is unashamedly head over heels in love with you. So read on. Your complicated experience with human relationships notwithstanding, the promise embedded in the image of bridegroom and bride is staggering, and the delight is almost too much to take in. Section 2. What's a love poem doing in my Bible? Song of Solomon 
that intimate love ballad of the Old Testament seems almost out of place in a collection of holy writings. If you picked up this graphic expression of desire as a paperback, it would probably have an NC-17 rating and some partially exposed pomegranates on the cover. In fact, tradition suggests that at one point this Song of Songs had an NC-30 rating. Good Jews weren't supposed to read this part of the Bible until they were 30 years old. The logic for this prohibition seems to be expressed in the last chapter of the book itself. Don't excite love, don't stir it up until the time is ripe. Nonetheless, this steamy love poem is a part of the library we call scripture. Not in the teen readers section, for sure, but still part of the collection. So is there anything that this book can tell us about our relationship with God in Jesus Christ? For some faithful readers throughout history, wanting Song of Solomon to say something about Jesus has led them to think it can't be saying anything about intimate, sensual love and desire. Faced with a text that clearly does touch on all of those themes, they have to say the author must actually mean something else. This is where biblical interpretation can get a bit bizarre, but any time you try to make the author not mean what the text is obviously saying, you are going to get all kinds of strange results. Song of Solomon is certainly not, not talking about intimate, sensual love and desire. On the other hand, this love ballad is actually in your Bible, so perhaps the song is not only about intimate, sensual love and desire. In fact, the intimacy of mar the marriage relationship is used throughout Scripture as an image for the mutual relationship between God and God's people. God seems to view the covenant at Sinai as if the Almighty were the groom speaking intimate words of love and promise, and Israel were the bride speaking those tender words right back. Check out Hosea 2, verses 14 to 23. The prophets view idolatry not just as the breaking of a set of rules— but as the willful betrayal of a marriage relationship, the spiritual equivalent of going behind your spouse's back to spend quality time with the local prostitutes. You can check out Exodus 34, Leviticus 17, or Hosea's chapter 1, or 2, or 3. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's Exodus 25 and 34, 14. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, doesn't paint God as petty or emotional, it frames the bond between God and God's people as a committed, intimate, dare we say, monogamous relationship. The New Testament follows suit. Of course, Jesus tells parables of the kingdom as a wedding banquet, but even more specifically, John the Baptist refers to himself as the best man and Jesus as the groom. That's John 3, 29-30. Paul talks about the church as the bride of Christ, and in a section Paul himself admits is a little confusing, Paul talks about the relationship of husband and wife as an image of the relationship of Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5. In the closing chapters of the whole Bible, John describes the kicking off of an eternal party known as the wedding feast of the Lamb, and God's people as a radiant bride. Revelation 19, 7-9 and 21 verses 2 and 9. 
suddenly it doesn't seem so strange to think Song of Solomon has a place in the canon of Scripture. That image of bridegroom and bride, of husband and wife, loving and being loved, is all about an intimate, mutual, joyful, exclusive relationship of longing and delight. Read in that light, this Song of Songs is an amazing expression of God's intimate love for us and an invitation into an intimate, tender, passionate relationship with God. Don't push that image too far, but do push it far enough. The Spirit intends for you to experience and understand God's love for you and your love for God through the lens of the intimate, mutual, playful, intense, passionate, exciting love relationship between an adoring bride and her adoring groom. We experience that love relationship with God together. Together as the church, we are the bride of Christ. That sense of community and corporate identity is an important part of the biblical bridal imagery. And we also experience that love relationship with God as unique individuals. The personal character of this intimate image invites us all to receive this promise personally. On the one hand, the scriptures paint a picture of communal salvation in a way that may be surprising to people in our individualistic society. On the other hand, those same scriptures paint a picture of salvation that is personal, intimate, and individual in a way that may have been surprising to people in the community-based society of the time. When Yahweh declares, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. That's Ezekiel 34. The image is communal. The flock is rescued as a flock. Jesus echoes that image when he talks about God being... Uh, Jesus echoes that image when he talks about being the good shepherd. The sheep all together listen and follow and are brought in. There is, quote, one flock, one shepherd, John 10. In both Old and New Testaments, we are loved and saved as a community and into a community. At the same time, when King David expresses God's personal relationship to him as a person, the former sheep herder uses startlingly individualistic language. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me, restores me, comforts me. In a time and culture when your identity was fundamentally tied to your community, the fact that the entire 23rd Psalm is written in the first person singular is astounding. Jesus picks up on that individual, personal aspect of salvation in the parable of the lost sheep. Sheep, singular and individual. Matthew 18, 12-13 says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices. That's another delight word. Rejoice 
Cairo, like the city, Cairo, is related to words we met back in chapter one on joyful delight. Joy, kara, that is caress with an ah, and grace, caris, caress with an is. He rejoices, Cairo, joyful delight, over that one sheep more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will, thelema in Greek, desirable delight. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Cairo is to be glad, delight, rejoice as a result of grace. A single sheep is worth it. A single pearl can have immeasurable value. Your personal God values you personally. As an individual, you belong to the fellowship of believers, the whole Christian church on earth, the bride of Christ. And the Spirit also intends for you to experience and understand God's love for you as an individual and your personal love for God through the lens of the intimate, mutual, playful, intense, passionate, exciting love relationship between an adoring bride and her adoring groom. You are saved as an individual. And you are saved into a community. Grace upon grace, delight and even more delight. The Song of Solomon was written for you as an individual and for us as a church. We'll look at each of those in turn, but they're both true the whole time. So as we raise a glass and the lights dim for dinner and the music starts to play, keep in mind that the guy in the tux leading you to the dance floor is head over heels in love with you as an individual. And remember that all of us together as the church belong to him, together and forever. Cheers. That was the uh, second section of chapter 8 of Delight. That dichotomy of the individual and the communal is a little bit tricky to navigate sometimes. I know you know we think of ourselves very individualistically, and that's almost the exact opposite of many of the cultures represented by the biblical writings. Uh, these people knew themselves to be a part of a community and received their identity as a part of that community. So it's kind of cool to think that there would have been people reading Psalm 23 astounded at how individualistic it is. For us, I think it, it kind of happens the other way. We're astounded at how communal salvation can be. Well, hey, that's only 20 minutes in, so I think we've got time for one more section. Uh, I can see some people are talking about Andrew Peterson. I'm glad of that. I hope you do check out Andrew Peterson after the reading tonight and for several nights to come. This third section of chapter 8 is called The Bride, <clears throat> and this is what the bride says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. In Song of Solomon, chapter 6, the bride sums up her relationship with the groom. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. It sounds really cool in the Hebrew. Next time you're whispering sweet nothings into your beloved's ear, try this one on for size. 
Ani le dodi ve dodi li. That's a sure winner every time. Ani le dodi ve dodi li. Seriously, though, if you repeat that phrase enough to get used to it, you begin to get a sense of the rhythm, the flow of the Hebrew poetry. Shakespeare's iambic pentameter has nothing on the graceful Ani le dodi ve dodi li. Okay, trust me on this. The Hebrew poetry is beautifully rhythmic and balanced. And whether you can catch a glimpse of that beauty or not, even the English translation captures the balance and grace of the meaning. I, my beloveds, and my beloved, mine. That's what the bride says to the bridegroom in Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's a word of confidence. That's a word of surety. That's a word of joy and delight. A word spoken at the altar. I am my beloved. So yes, and my beloved, he is mine. I know this to be true. I trust this must be true. I have seen this to be true. We belong to each other. I belong to him and he belongs to me. Ani le dodi ve dodi li. Later in the song, in chapter 7, the bride says the same thing even more strongly. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. If you ever get to Song of Solomon chapter 7 in your Bible reading, this would be a good place to excuse the children for children's church. But the point is this. The bride is so confident of the groom's love that she could even boast and brag about how much he desires her. And that confidence makes her desire him right back. They share a moment of mutual delight where bride and groom unashamedly and unabashedly and unreservedly love and belong to each other. That's the kind of confidence I think the Spirit of Jesus wants to invite you into today. A confidence that no matter what else is going on in your life, you can say this one thing for sure and certain. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You belong to Jesus. You can have confidence in that. And although we don't say it like that very often, there is a sense in which your Jesus belongs to you. It's not as if Jesus were your own personal possession and you can put him on a shelf and take him down occasionally to show off to your friends. Any real love relationship isn't like that either. Rather, you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to you in a mutual relationship. The two of you just belong together. Imagine what it would mean for you to say with confidence about Jesus, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Imagine the audacity of faith that would lead you to say, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Yet that audacious, yet that audacious statement is at the heart of the gospel promise. 
Jesus wants you to have the kind of confidence and faith in his love and commitment and compassion and delight that you would be able to boast in the spirit. Oh, yes, I am my beloved's. I belong with Jesus and Jesus. He loves me and delights in me and cherishes me. I know he belongs with me. What a beautiful moment of faith to be convinced in your soul that the one you love most loves you right back. That beautiful moment can be as tender and as fleeting as promises of love spoken at the altar. Of course, Miriam doesn't walk around the house most days with that silly look of giddy love on her face. Of course, I look even less like Prince Charming than I did back then. But after 25 years, I still know that even though I'm not perfect and she's not perfect. My favorite person in the whole world still thinks the world of me. Usually. On most days. It seems to me that the culture around us tends to hold up that fleeting feeling of head over heels love as the gold standard, the thing that's most important. And if you can't feel that with your spouse anymore, conventional wisdom says it's okay to find it somewhere else. That habit of chasing an emotional experience naturally leads you farther and farther away from any type of real relationship in which you could experience emotional connection fully and intimately with the best kind of wonder and delight. Chase the experience and you end up without a relationship, chase the relationship, and the experience will follow. I think one of the temptations we face as followers of Jesus in our current cultural environment is to treat our relationship with Jesus that same way, to chase the experience. That fleeting moment of head over heels in love becomes the spiritual gold standard. Your emotions end up taking center stage, and if your worship service or your pastor or your denomination doesn't make you feel like you used to, it only makes sense to find that experience somewhere else. <laughs> One burden we put on ourselves is the burden of expectation. I expect following Jesus will feel the way everyone tells me it's supposed to feel. Wonderful and dramatic and emotional and sensational and delightful all the time. And it doesn't work out like that in real life. I begin to doubt the authenticity of my experience. I begin to doubt the authenticity of my faith. I can even begin to doubt the authenticity of my God. Just like the commercialization of romantic love can make Valentine's Day seem hollow, the commercialization of pious love can make Christian holidays feel forced or empty. Last Christmas, a, a friend shared a Charlie Brown cartoon that expressed how he was feeling as the world around him says he should be having deep, meaningful, and emotional experiences of faith. Maybe you've seen the cartoon. Maybe you can relate. Charlie Brown is leaning on a brick wall covered in snow. His head is propped in one hand and 
He's discussing life with Linus, who's wearing a green stocking cap, snuggling his ubiquitous blue blanket and sucking his thumb. As large snowflakes gently drift down, Charlie Brown makes this lament. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Wow. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. That says a lot, doesn't it? I think we can sometimes get caught up in the expectation of feeling a certain way when it comes to religion. And if Jesus feels distant or the Spirit feels absent or the Father feels disinterested, we pile guilt and shame on top of the loneliness and grief. There must be something wrong with me. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. In this book on delight, in this chapter on intimate and almost, and uh, in this chapter on intimate and passionate and almost giddy love, I want you to know that the feeling of personal connection and spiritual joy is not the gold standard. If your faith doesn't feel giddy right now, you aren't a failure. Jesus knows you and loves you and loves being with you. Even when you can't feel it, don't feel it, or don't even want to feel it. The reality of Jesus' love for you is way bigger than what your emotions tell you about your faith. You can lay down the burden of expectation that comes with wanting to be a good Christian. You can just be who you are because Jesus actually likes you, the real you, the complicated ball of emotions and expectations and needs and failures and joys and sorrows and desires and identity crises. Jesus actually likes you the real you. He's much less interested in the person you think you're supposed to be. I mean, you can talk to him about the person you think you're supposed to be, but Jesus thinks the person you are is way more interesting and delightful. Jesus thinks you're awesome. You don't feel that right now? That's okay. It's still true. My wife doesn't have to be giddy in order to love me. I don't have to feel any certain way on any certain day to validate my love for her. Our relationship is not determined or grounded on the way we happen to feel at the moment. And if we never felt anything, wouldn't that also seem wrong? I don't judge my marriage by my feelings, but don't feelings of love and excitement and even giddy delight belong fundamentally to the intimacy of the marriage covenant? If one of our temptations as followers of Jesus is to chase an emotional experience as a way of validating our faith, I think another temptation is to avoid all emotional experience as if not having an experience were a way of validating your faith. I've seen that. I've done that. I have sometimes thought or acted like I thought that not experiencing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit was a sign of strong faith. 
After all, feeling like God's promises are true doesn't make them true. God's promises are true whether I feel like it or not. So far, so good. Ergo, not feeling or experiencing God's promises must be true faith. Now, wait a minute. The logic is good up to a certain point. I know my wife loves me even when I don't feel like it, and even when she doesn't feel like it. That confidence is foundational to our relationship. I don't have to doubt every time one of us is less than giddy. But push that too far, and you end up in a relationship that only remembers love and not in a love relationship. Emotions aren't a true litmus test for the relationship. But if I never feel like I love my wife, if she never feels a little head over heels still once in a while, just a tiny bit, if our emotions, which can lie to us, never confirm the truth, wouldn't we want to work on that? But not work on the emotions, as if trying harder at feeling would bring authentic results. Rather, work on the relationship. Chase the relationship, and the experience will follow. I think following Jesus is like that. We've got a couple of pages before the end of this section, and it's been 33 minutes. I think I'm going to try to hurry up and finish up so it can be, we can uh, end at the end of a section. Okay, hang, in with, hang with me just a couple more minutes. Chase the relationship and the experience will follow. I think following Jesus is like that. I think it is good, meet, right, and salutary that you should at all times and in all places have the kind of confident faith that says, I trust God's promises are true even if I don't feel like it. And if you never feel like God's promises are true, Jesus wants you to long for something more. Don't chase the emotions. Do chase the relationship. And don't carry the burden of having to experience any particular emotion at any point in the journey. Are you grieving this Easter? Grieve. Jesus is with you. Are you sad this Christmas? Be sad. Jesus is with you. Jesus doesn't love some perfect and imaginary version of you that says and does and feels all the right things at all the right times. Jesus loves you. The real you. The you that doesn't live up to your own expectations of what faith is supposed to be like. Don't give up on feeling deep and personal love in your faith walk. And stop trying so hard to have an experience of deep and personal love. Like all areas of discipleship, you can give your emotions or lack of emotions over to Jesus and let him deal with them. You don't have to carry that burden. And then in parentheses, I say, go ahead, do that right now. It's not hard. Dear Jesus, I give you my emotions. I don't trust them and I can't control them, but I trust your spirit. Reign also in my feelings. Amen. I distinctly remember standing in a friend's kitchen and arguing about spiritual experience. I was in town for a conference and Three of us were talking about faith and experience and emotions and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jamie Wishman, it was your house 
And uh, Carl Medeiros, you were the third one in that conversation. I came down pretty hard on the, even if I don't experience it, I trust it is still true side of the equation to the point that of just about denying that I ever needed anything you could call a spiritual experience ever again. I don't think I was exactly wrong, but I don't think I understood delight. Okay, maybe I was wrong. I don't remember the details of the impassioned argument for or against emotional experience in the life of faith. What I do remember is worship at the conference gathering the next day while I was standing there with other worshipers singing songs of praise and trust and confidence and joy and going out of my way not to have a spiritual experience. The Holy Spirit took me by the scruff of the neck and shook me until I was weeping and laughing at the same time. Rarely have I felt such intimate connection or overwhelming delight in the presence of Jesus or the power of the Spirit. My mind knew something to be true. My faith doesn't depend on my emotions. But my mind had forgotten something my heart learned again that day. My emotions are a part of my faith. That palpable presence of the Spirit was a playful and joyful slap upside the head, a reminder that while I can't dictate how I should experience Jesus, I can't keep him in a nice, tidy, sterile box either. The irony of me, the one who just passionately argued against needing an emotional experience, having such an emotional experience, just added to the laughter and the delight. I love that Jesus has a sense of humor. Let me say it again. My faith doesn't depend on my emotions, and my emotions are part of my faith. That's why I want to explore this intimate delight a little bit more before we move on. I believe, I believe Jesus does love you intimately and personally and playfully, I believe it is good news that you don't have to manufacture an emotional response to that love. What's more, I also believe that your emotional response is part of your relationship with Jesus. You don't have to feel giddy about it all the time. And more and more, as you get to know Jesus better and better, as the Spirit shapes and molds you, you just might have more of an emotional experience of your faith. In fact, I think you will experience the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But don't chase the experience. Chase the relationship. The bride in Song of Solomon says with confidence, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I want that confidence. And I want that confidence for you, too. To help us get there, let's look at what the groom says to the bride and at some of the reasons we have trouble hearing that statement of delight from Jesus. And we'll save that for tomorrow night. Hey, thanks everybody. Thanks for being with me. Thanks especially to my wife Miriam for loving me even when she doesn't like me and liking me because she loves me. Uh, good night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go check out Andrew Peterson. Good night.